Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor. I'll be your host. And just like to thank you guys for checking out the podcast. We're here on episode three. I've been really happy with the numbers that we're seeing so far. It's really cool seeing all the international downloads from from different places. And just wanted to take a second and plug our social media. We are on Instagram at Beyond the Breakers podcast. And if you want to reach out to us via email with suggestions or comments, we are beyondthebreakers at gmail.com. And with that, I'll kind of roll into it. I'd like to introduce my co-host, who's pretty much always the one uh, joining me on this podcast, Tanner. Tanner, how you doing? Hey, pretty good. Good to be here for episode three now. Episodes one and two were really enjoyable. Learned a lot. So yeah, I'm also really happy with our with our download numbers. We've got some some good plays all over the place. I'm happy with those uh, those Canada numbers. I like seeing those Canada numbers. Doing well in Canada. Yeah, get the. Gotta get those. Bit of a risk, though. I do feel a little bit of extra pressure. I just feel like there's this inherent connection between Canada and the sea, shipwrecks, that sort of thing, that sort of folklore. So I do feel a little bit of extra pressure knowing that our neighbors are watching us. Yeah, I was going to say between Stan Rogers and Gordon Lightfoot, there's a there's a little pressure there. Oh, the year was 1778. <laughs> so how are you doing? How's how are things up in Wisconsin? Oh, they're good. We're out of our cold snap, or we're getting out of it. Maybe for good, but probably not. My work schedule still crazy. Still doing my overnight teaching for my overseas students, which is not ideal, but it's no. It doesn't sound like it's it. becoming more acceptable. It is kind of nice being home during the day. Yeah, it's a lot like my schedule, working all night, dealing with truck drivers. I don't know. It's snowy down here in Ohio. We got like six inches of snow, so it uh, feels a lot like Wisconsin, actually. Yeah, probably more so than we do. We've we've missed the bad stuff. Milwaukee and Chicago have kind of gotten hammered, but up here in our little corner, we're doing doing okay. That's good. That's good. Well, now that we got that out of the way, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a question about maritime history in the United States. Are you ready? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. What is the worst maritime disaster in terms of lives lost in uh, the United States? What would be your guess? United States, the worst maritime disaster. My guess would be the Eastland. That's, I guess, just the one I know the most about, and that one was pretty bad. So yeah, I guess the Eastland in that sank, I think, in the Chicago River. Yeah, that's actually that's a really good guess that I think a lot of people would uh, not have even thought of. It's actually not the Eastland, it, uh, but it did take place in a river. And uh, another fun fact: it's not even located underwater anymore. It is actually in a field. Impressive, but. Uh, it is. It's it's very impressive. The answer to that question is actually the steamship Sultana. Have you heard of that? I do know the name. I'd seen your references to it, but I know the name mainly just in the context of the American Civil War. Right. Yeah, that's, this story that's something is definitely... I have read a little bit more extensively about than shipwrecks. And that is definitely a name that has come up before. I don't know much about it, the incident itself, but but it's definitely a name that you see in books. Yeah, that's it's definitely tied up in all the Civil War lore and everything. And 
Yeah, let's let's dive into it. We'll start at the very beginning. And like all good stories, this one begins in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hey, hey. So the Sultana was built by the John Litherberry Boatyard, and that was located in Cincinnati, which if you don't know a lot about steamboats type stuff, Cincinnati was a big hub of steamboat operations and construction. It was kind of like the, one of the original boom towns in the United States. And it was just located in a good spot on the Ohio River to kind of get further south to St. Louis and ultimately New Orleans and places like that. So a little bit more about the Sultana. It was launched on January 3rd, 1863, so right in the middle of the Civil War. It was 260 feet long, around 39 feet wide, and something I found interesting, it only drew seven feet of water. So a lot of these steamboats have extremely shallow drafts to get, you know, up and down some of these rivers and, you know, get to places that are really inaccessible almost any other way. So they served a really vital role in trade and transportation. That's extremely impressive. And I I didn't realize that a ship that size, again, my as we've established in the last two episodes, I have no concept of how big a ship is. But it seems like a steamboat's a pretty big, pretty heavy thing. And the fact that it only draws seven feet of water, that's really impressive. Because even thinking back to something like a like a Viking longship, like famous for their shallow drafts, I think those only drew like three or four feet of water. And to have something that's this much bigger, really not needing much more water to sail. That's really cool. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty impressive fact. I actually did not know that. I must confess, I don't know a ton about steamships and riverboats and stuff like that on the on the rivers. All I know I is that really interesting. All I know is that steamboats are totally safe. Yeah, very safe. Nothing goes wrong with them ever. So the the initial plan for the Sultana is that it's going to run between St. Louis and New Orleans. You can imagine that it's a lot of sugar, a lot of cotton. Just you know, these things are the they're the semis or trains of their day. It's, it's how you move mass quantities of things far distances in the inland United States. You use the rivers. Due to the time period that it's launched in in 1863, it also serves another purpose. It frequently carries Union soldiers during the Civil War. So during that time period, you know, you've got the Army of Tennessee and all that going up and down the river. You're moving men and material trying to choke off the Confederacy. So that's something that it became almost a a weekly, monthly thing that it was doing. A little bit more about the boilers on the Sultana, which this will become important later. There was a special type of fire tube boiler, and it allowed the Sultana to be extremely fast. However, like anything else, it comes with some disadvantages, which are safety. Water levels had to be constantly maintained. Even small dips in the water level could lead to metal fatigue. And when you think about a boiler being under pressure, metal fatigue is a bad thing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to say anything with fire tube in the name <laughs> is not, not the best is maybe not the safest thing it could be. Like, I probably wouldn't use a fire tube computer or even a fire tube pencil, probably. And we're not going to get too into this, honestly, on here. We're not an engineering podcast. I'm not an engineer. I don't claim to be one, and I don't want to be one. But uh, just know that the boilers used on this boat are dangerous. Kind of some final facts about the ship. She had a crew of 85. So actually, out of all the ships we've talked about so far, this is the smallest vessel but it has the largest crew. And if you think about it, that makes sense. This is the oldest story that we've talked about so far. And it's, it's just more manual. There's, it's more manual labor, unloading, loading, stoking the boilers. Everything's done by hand. Mm-hmm. One final number to keep in mind is the passenger capacity. The listed capacity of this vessel was 376. Keep that number 376 in mind. It will be very important in a few minutes. That's a very ominous part of the notes here that I see. Passenger <laughs> capacity, 376. This will be important. (laughs) Does not sound good. So like any 
tragic story or engineering disaster or ship disaster, we're going to start with a date. That date is April 13th. This is the date that the Sultana departs St. Louis bound for New Orleans. It's captained by James Mason, and he <laughs> had... Oh, no. As far as I can read, he has been the captain of this boat for quite a while. It's, I don't know that he had like an own, a true ownership stake in the boat, but it certainly seemed like it. The more money the boat made, the more money he made. So during the trip south to New Orleans, he stops in Cairo, Illinois on April 15th. And this is 1865, I should specify. Do you know what happened on April 15th, 1865 that would be important in this, this region of the world? Uh, I do. Uh, what, what would that be? A, a, a certain estimable personage named Abraham Lincoln, was taken from us by an assassin's bullet. That is true. Yeah, it was the day of Lincoln's death. The news finally gets to Cairo, and you can imagine it probably came pretty slow via telegraph and by word of mouth, I would assume. And the Cairo newspapers are printing up, you know, special editions and everything. So Mason grabs a bunch of these newspapers and heads south. I'm not sure what he really plans to do with them. I don't know why the newspapers are important. Maybe just to <laughs> prove that what he's saying is true. Uh, maybe it's like that Tom Hanks movie where he has to read the news. I don't know. But that, uh, that, was a, that was a detail in all the accounts I read is that he gathered up a bunch of newspapers and started steaming south to spread the word. He uh, rightfully assumed that the telegraph lines in the Deep South were cut due to Confederate saboteurs. Can I, I just want to point something out for our listeners here. Cairo, Illinois is in fact pronounced Cairo, not Cairo, like the city in Egypt. So if you see it on paper, it doesn't sound the way you think it does, probably. It is in fact pronounced Cairo, Illinois. That is a good point of clarification, because yeah, I could imagine it's, if you are not from the region, you may wonder what we're saying. Very similar, <laughs> very similar to Versailles. Like, Gotta love America and our pronunciations. Like, like the famous <laughs> palace near Paris. All right. So once he arrives in Vicksburg, Mississippi, he met with a union quartermaster and the quartermaster inquired about the Sultana services. Vicksburg had become it, it had been in a, you know, pretty big battle in the Civil War and had kind of become like a, a southern hub for the uh, United States Army for logistics, for mustering men. It was a very important city logistically. At this point in the war, it became a staging ground for POWs that were being released or paroled from southern prisons. So while in Vicksburg, the captain talks to a quartermaster about potentially hauling some soldiers north. And there were thousands of soldiers in the town of Vicksburg. They talk rates, and basically it turns out that he's going to get paid per person. He gets paid $2.75 per enlisted and $8 per officer. That's a substantial increase. So he's so the captain, is he, he's making, he would make this money directly to him? I, I didn't really... No, I don't see anything specified, but it definitely seems like he's getting a large cut of this. And it definitely the more money he makes, the more money he gets. I mean, I, I'm sure he's got a pay crew and all that. But yeah, like he has every incentive to cram as many people as he can on this boat. I also did a quick conversion here to today money. Per enlisted man, he's making $44 in 2020 okay. money or 2021 money. That $8 per officer comes out to $128.38. That would be a hefty payday. Yeah, especially when we start talking about how many people he gets on the boat. The quartermaster offered a guarantee of at least 1,400 POWs, but he also required a little bit of a kickback of this money to make sure that that happened. So it was definitely a I'll help you, you help me under the table kind of situation, which nothing ever goes wrong when we flaunt safety rules and work under the table. I mean, are you are you really a quartermaster at this point in history if you're not doing that? 
This is true. He was probably some rich guy that like didn't want to do any actual fighting. So yeah, he. this is just a normal day in the office for him. So upon agreeing to this, the Sultana departed further south. It continued to spread the word of Lincoln's assassination, which I'm not really sure why. Again, like I guess he just feels the call to go do this. But uh, unfortunately, they don't make it very far. On April 21st, he's only about 10 hours south of Vicksburg. One of the Sultana's boilers springs a leak. So he's forced to turn around and limp back to Vicksburg. Again, that's, you know, a central hub. You know, they've got facilities where he can get that repaired. Upon arrival in Vicksburg, Captain Mason attempts to get his boiler repaired. So he finds a local mechanic and the mechanic suggests basically a replacement of the bad boiler. And that's going to take days. Captain Mason's thinking that, you know, I'm going to lose out on all the money from the soldiers. I'm gonna, it's going to cost more to have that repaired. Like basically, that's not a thing that he wants to do. Mm-hmm. He wants that money. So he's able to talk the mechanic into just patching the boiler, which doesn't sound like a phrase you ever want to hear. Patch the boiler. Basically, he rivets a piece of metal over the hole and hopes for the best. So due to getting that done so quickly, Captain Mason is able to secure his cargo of POWs. This is where the corruption kind of begins, like to really rear its head. So Captain Mason had been promised 1,400 soldiers. However, due to multiple issues, he ends up with far more. There's a lot of corruption going on and you know people being exposed and basically he becomes the last steamboat who isn't like banned from carrying these soldiers that's docked there so they end up kind of just shoving all of these men on the boat the number was thought to be around 1500 men so already more than he was promised but in all likelihood the actual number is probably around 2100 oh god so you're talking an extra 700 men from what he was promised and Think back. What was the capacity number of this boat? Uh, like in the 300s, 370 something? 367. 367 people. That's how many people are supposed to be on this boat. And we have now, plus the crew, put 2,100 people on the boat. Was it like five five times capacity? Something like that? Yeah, something around that. I I posted a picture of the boat on uh, Instagram if you want to take a look at it. And... It's absolutely packed. There's people everywhere. I don't. I can't imagine how they got that many people on there. But another important thing to consider in all this is who these men were. Who are the men that were the passengers mm-hmm. on this boat? They were recently freed or paroled POWs. Mm-hmm. So if we know anything about prisoners of war, they're generally not provided the best nutrition and you know fitness plans and all that. And particularly soldiers in the South that were being held POW. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the resources and or the desire to properly care for them. So these men are malnourished. They suffer from a variety of diseases. These aren't very healthy men mm-hmm. that are on this boat. So after getting loaded, they begin their, uh, their journey north. The first two days of the trip, they're pretty uneventful. The river is massively like swollen and overflowing due to the kind of the spring runoff that happens. It's all the All the snow and ice from up north in Minnesota, the Dakotas, Ohio, Michigan, all of that's draining down into the Mississippi River. Uh, So the water's cold, the water's fast, and the current's very strong. That will be important in a minute. Around 7 p.m. on April 26th, the Sultana reached Memphis. In Memphis, she unloaded some sugar that she was carrying as cargo, and she also disembarked around 200 passengers, which, again, 200... That sounds like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, like it, it's not a significant number in decreasing who was on this boat. So she finishes her stay in Memphis by adding coal for her boilers, and then she resumed her trip northward. All right. So she leaves around 1 a.m. Near 2 a.m., 
So she's not that far out. She's only been she's she's only pushed off about an hour ago. The Sultana was close to seven miles north of Memphis. And this is where our story begins to take a very tragic turn. Very suddenly, one of her boilers exploded. This was immediately followed by two other boilers exploding. Unfortunately, due to the time that this is like, we don't know which boiler it was. Obviously, we can suspect that it was probably the patched boiler that would be a logical, uh, you know, conclusion to, to come to. The one that the mechanic just duct taped together. Yeah, I mean, to the mechanic's credit, he wanted to fix it for real. So this results in a massive steam explosion. It completely destroys the pilot house and tears holes through its deck. So, I mean, you can just imagine geysers of boiling steam just shooting through a ship mm. and what, what that would do. The smokestacks topple over, causing further damage and crushing people. And a portion of the rear deck collapses to the now exposed boilers, which results in a fire. So you can just imagine the the floor giving way and you're you're dropped into a boiler, basically. So we've got, I mean, got explosions. We've got fire. We've got boilers. We've got the river. We've got stuff falling over and crushing people. Just uh, You've got it all. This is like, everything. You, you check, if you've got a phobia. You check all the disaster boxes. If you've got a phobia, it's probably here. Yeah, this sounds like an absolutely awful scene. Like it, I, I don't know. It, it almost seems like something that uh, is surreal. If you and keep in mind that it's at night, so everything is going to be lit by the glow of the fire. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's an extremely hellish scene. So due to the fire and that's spreading around the ship now because of the boilers, many of the survivors that had to survive the initial shock and explosions and collapses, they have to make a decision: do you stay on the burning boat or do you take your chances in the swiftly moving freezing cold river. And obviously you're going to have to end up in the river. Mm -hmm. This is where the malnutrition and the weakness of the men come into play. Obviously being in a cold river, anytime isn't great. Hypothermia is going to set in, even if you're in good shape, but if you're malnourished and you're already sick, you don't have a chance. So what ends up happening is when men are drowning in groups, everyone's grabbing onto everyone else and you end up having groups of men basically drowning each other, trying to save themselves. So it's, Again, just all around, it's just an awful scene. About 30 minutes later, the first ship arrives on scene, and that was the Bostana. It was another steamboat sailing southbound. And about that same time, men begin to drift down to like the waterfront area of Memphis. So you can imagine being a resident of Memphis on the waterfront or a worker, you know, on the waterfront at that time, seeing burning chunks of boat in the water, men screaming. It had to be quite the scene. I can't imagine. And at that point, uh, boats begin to leave from Memphis to also try to scoop survivors out of the water. Uh, unfortunately, many of the men did uh, die from hypothermia and drowning. I mean, that was that's kind of what it came down to is if you got off the boat, it was a definite fight for survival. And unfortunately, many men didn't make it. Also, one final note that as a result of the massive explosion, many of the bodies were never identified and never recovered. So this also leads into the problem of knowing how many people were actually on the boat. We we don't have solid numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems, um, that seems as, like it would be difficult. Yeah, like you don't even know who's there, so you can't give us an accurate number. The pilot house was destroyed, as I mentioned previously. So this also kills most of the ship's officers. And that becomes a problem during the investigation. There's really no one to actually hold accountable as far as what happened on the boat, because there's no one alive that can give you any real answers, you know? Right. Some guy whose job is to unload and load cargo doesn't know what's going on. He's, you know, he's as clueless as the next, as any of the soldiers as to what happened. But yeah, it, uh, it's, it's a pretty bad scene. Modern estimates put the death toll at 1,168, 
Although if you read various accounts, it can range anywhere from 1100 to 1550. So it's, it's quite the range. And again, we just simply don't know. The victims were ultimately buried in the Memphis National Cemetery. They had been buried in a few spots kind of as they were found uh, at the time. But eventually the federal government does decide to establish an actual Civil War cemetery in Memphis and the bodies are moved to a central location. So let's talk about survivors for a second, because a lot of men did survive this. I mean, with that many people on the boat, there were some people that did survive. Around 760 men are estimated to have survived the disaster. And they actually established a survivor group, which is kind of interesting. They ended up meeting every year. I forgot what year that that stopped, but I can tell you that the last survivor died in 1941. That's crazy. It is really crazy to think that someone who experienced this at the end of the Civil War was alive right at the beginning of uh, the United States entry into World War II. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, that, that's... It's kind of an interesting overlap in history. Mm-hmm. All right, so we've kind of established the story of the Sultana. So let's talk a little bit about the findings, the aftermath, and finding the remains of the ship itself. Ultimately, no one was held accountable for this accident. Uh, the person who was blamed, obviously, was the captain, and he was dead. He was killed immediately in the accident. So... The Army did investigate the officers who had loaded the ship, mm-hmm. but in kind of the typical bureaucratic way, everyone involved was either able to resign or kind of snake their way around prosecution. There was a lot of, you know, the war is over. We don't need you in the service anymore. Why don't you go ahead and just resign? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll let this whole thing just kind of move on. That's interesting because, like, we talked earlier about the paying Per person, basically, I, I make X amount of money if I can get this many people on the on the boat, and obviously that contributes to why a captain or why why we'd want we would want to overload this boat. But like, if this story happened today, I could totally see the excuse for this being, well, uh, we just want to get these boys home as soon as possible. We don't want them to have to wait down here, right? Uh, so, which which I mean is not an invalid reason to do this, but obviously at the expense of safety you'd have to question it. Exactly. And I mean, that's, I'm sure that some of the same excuses were used then as well, but oh, we're just trying to get people home. But yeah, at the end of the day, the person that they want to hold accountable and that is kind of nominally blamed is Captain Mason. And he's very much guilty, but also a convenient target to pin all the blame on because he is, he's not there. He's dead. Yes. And as we know from the 1953 film, Julius Caesar, the one with Marlon Brando, we know not to trust James Mason. (laughs) I know we kind of touched on it a little bit, but the other reasons that this sort of faded probably from the collective conscience is that it's the, you know, you're right at the end of the American Civil War. People don't want to talk about it. People want to go back to their lives. People are happy that their fathers or brothers or uncles are back home. You know, my life's okay. So I don't want to think about the bad thing, basically. Also, it it shared headlines with the killing of John Wilkes Booth, which... I can only imagine, like, if you had a scenario like that today, that would be massive headlines. And there's probably nothing that could bump that off of there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's just a variety of reasons that that just kind of faded away. Yeah, I mean, just with that, it's like drawing broad and inaccurate historical parallels. But, I mean, imagine if there had been a plane crash on the same day that Osama bin Laden was killed. In the United right. States, no one would have cared about that news story about the plane. Exactly. Yeah, it's it, like you said. It's a very it's a very broad comparison, but inaccurate one. That uh, massive headlines are going to be massive headlines. So let's talk a little bit about the remains of the Sultana. They were actually located in 1982. They were found on the Arkansas side of the river, and they're about four miles from Memphis. 
It was actually located in a soybean field. Unlike, you know, lakes, oceans that generally kind of keep the same footprint within reason, rivers, especially a big river like the Mississippi, they change course all the time. Mm -hmm. So over the course of, you know, a hundred and some years, the river had actually like rechanneled itself. So the site that the, the wreckage of the Sultana is in is about two miles from the main channel today. That's this is such a weird thing to think about. That's that crazy. The, the worst maritime accident in the United States history, the remains of that boat are two miles from the water in a farmer's soybean field. I don't know. I find that really so, interesting. So and, uh, do you know, do they, do they have anything there? Is there like a, is there like a museum or like, can you touch pieces of I, it? I looked online and there, I think there's like a, there is a Sultana museum right there. Um, I forgot what little town it's in. It's kind of by West Memphis, but I, it, it was very small. Ah. I, I don't even know that it's like really a thing. It looked like it was a house. Talking like, we talking like uh, Tupelo Battlefield small? Uh, probably smaller than that. <laughs> you know, it, it is, it's crazy to think that there's not a big memorial to that. In which there are like, memorials in some of the towns where the men were from. Uh, I know Mansfield, Ohio has one. Various other cities have, you know, memorials and obelisks and things like that for it. But it is very shocking that, you know, at the site of one of America's biggest tragedies, there's not a whole lot to commemorate it. Yeah. And as far as finding pieces of it, um, I know when they discovered the remains, I'm sure that they've preserved some of that, but I think it was mostly just charred timber and things like that. Like it was not a, there wasn't a lot to save right. since it was a wooden boat. So that's kind of the story of the Sultana. Let's, let's move into a little bit of our discussion portion. I know. There's a lot to discuss here, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. As always, let's start with what caused the accident. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, what are your first takes when you hear the, the question of what caused the Sultana disaster? The feeling I get, and just from the little bit that I have read about other accidents involving steamboats on, on rivers, it just it seems like the whole boiler system tends to get overloaded sometimes for various reasons, whether it's human error or just mechanical failure. And that just seems like a really dangerous way to travel. For sure. I mean, there's a reason we eventually moved away from steam boilers and things like that. Like it, it's efficient, it's effective, but it's it's also exceptionally dangerous because of situations like this. When you have that much uh, hot water under pressure, bad things can happen if it's not properly uh, maintained and you got someone trying to patch a boiler rather than replace something. Yeah, I guess to, uh, to connect this with our previous or with uh, mainly with our El Faro accident, we talked about how maybe you can allow one thing to go wrong. One, one of these mistakes can happen, but not all of them. And you'll be okay. Right. You know, if you're working with a faulty boiler that's just been flex taped shut, <laughs> like the commercial, maybe you'll be okay, but don't put five times the capacity of your ship on it also. Or, hey, maybe you can overload the ship if you have a replacement boiler, but not both. Right. That's hitting on a great point. And I think we'll see that as we go through more and more of these disasters. It's never one thing. There's always multiple contributing factors that cause these accidents to happen the way they do. In this case, one thing that is kind of hypothesized and talked about is that the metal used in the construction of the boiler was problematic. And the the type of metal, and I am not a metallurgist, I don't uh, know anything about the different types of metal it was i just saw that uh this is referred to as charcoal hammered number one i don't know exactly what that means but that is the type of metal used in the boiler construction it was known to weaken over time going through heating and cooling cycles which is not great when it goes into a boiler 
because that's literally what boilers do. And by 1879, it's no longer used in boiler construction. So clearly the metal here is a known issue. Uh, Another problem is the use of dirty river water in the boilers. So mud and silt from the river water tends to settle on the bottom of the boiler, and that's known to then clog the boiler and cause hot spots. So you're exasperating that heating and cooling cycle on the metal. Hmm. So now you've got two things stacking to create a problem right there with the boiler, so like, which is probably why it had the issues in the first place. So like at that time, because I, I see that in the notes here, and that, that makes sense. I mean, if I was going to put water into a machine, I probably wouldn't use water that I just scooped out of the Mississippi River. But I guess at the same time, in in 1865, if you're if you're a boat captain like this, where where do you get like good water to put in this? I mean, do, are you using like drinking water basically? I would assume that you would have to have found like, a, a source, like a, go a drinking water down source, to the general or store, and get a jug of purified water. I mean, the same place that railroads got their water for their boilers mm-hmm. in their locomotives, I would imagine, because I mean, it's the same system in a train, and they had to you know right. they had to get water from somewhere. And then the final factor in like the cause of this accident, it's the massive overcrowding on this, the, the vessel. It's kind of what you touched on. Like, yeah, you can do one of these things and maybe you can get away with it. But, you know, if this vessel had only had 370 some people on it, then you might be able to safely evacuate that. You don't have the massive crush of people. People are still going to be killed in this incident because it's a boiler explosion. But maybe you have a chance, whereas so many people did not, because you can imagine the human crush that there was to get off of this boat mm-hmm. and the number of people in the water. Uh, there's no safe way to disembark in a rapid manner in this kind of a scenario. So that's what I, that's what I see as what, you know, the cause of the accident is the boiler. And then an, an additional factor is the overcrowding. That's what leads to the high death toll mm-hmm. in this incident. I want to say about the boilers, cause it's interesting in the notes. And then in some of the stuff I've been clicking through here, it always mentions that one boiler explodes and that sets off the other ones. I'm assuming that the boilers are all concentrated in one place, right? Yeah, and I didn't mention it because I didn't want to dig too deep into it on here, but these boilers are all like interconnected. That was another problem with this design is that water would slosh around basically between the four boilers, like if you were listing to one way or the other. And with that many people on board, there was a list depending on how people moved. So yeah, like it was just a very problematic design. Yeah, they and they all, they all mentioned that like one goes and then the others, and it seems to me like if one of your boilers exploded, they all would. I would say that would be in general, yeah, because you have to think about it. the The force from the explosion is going to rupture the other boilers, which then causes them to explode. It's like a chain reaction. It just situation. doesn't seem like there's a safe way to have one boiler explode. No, there's really not. It's, it's just, just bad. you just don't want that to happen. Uh, there is one. There's a few alternative and. Kind of conspiracy theories that go along with this story. Oh my, I'm, I'm, just gonna, I'm excited about this one. Oh. I'm just going to tell the main one. And uh, yeah, I'll give my thoughts on it too at the very end. Um, so the main alternative theory to the sinking or the Sultana disaster involves a man named William Streeter. So in 1888, Streeter claimed that his business partner, Robert Loudon, made a claim of sabotaging the Sultana. <laughs> Loudon was a Confederate agent during the Civil War, and he had operated around the uh, St. Louis area. And it is known that he had harassed steamboat shipping and had even burned a steamboat to the waterline at one point during the war. So he he's a man that knows how to get some stuff done mm-hmm. with steamboats, and he has proven that he's more than willing to do it. Loudon claimed that he used a item that was called a coal torpedo. And that's an awesome name. I'd never heard of that before. That's, uh, that's the, the West Virginia <laughs> Navy. Uh, that's their weapon of choice. <laughs> 
So all that is is basically a hollowed out piece of iron. And then you fill it with an explosive substance of your choosing and then cover it in coal dust. So it looks like a just a piece of coal. Ah. And the idea is that you throw it into a coal bin and as the you know, as they're feeding the boiler, they toss that bit of uh, explosive in there, it explodes in the boiler, and then the boilers explode, thereby destroying the steamship. Very clever. It uh it actually did work. Uh believe that there are a couple instances of it working during the Civil War. However, there is a problem with this story and Oh, that's such a cool story. <laughs> First and foremost, Loudon apparently made these claims while he was drinking in a bar. As we all know, a couple whiskeys and you're willing to exaggerate quite a bit. Ad- admit to the murder of a thousand people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as one does. Also, the location of the explosion doesn't support this. So the location of the explosion was in the boiler itself, not in like the coal boxes that fed the boiler. And they know this just by witness accounts of like what happened. Mm-hmm. If it had been a coal torpedo, the exp- the initial explosion would have been like where all the coal is being shoveled. So it's in all likelihood the story is not true. This is just a guy who probably had a few uh, too many old crows and decided he wanted to again be a mass murderer that day. I'll say if this was a movie, I would want to see this version. Yes, this would make for a much better film. You are correct. I know we've kind of touched on this, and I just wanna I just wanna make sure that I. Uh, fully express this is what factors contributed to this massive loss of life. I know we, we've hit on this quite a bit. It's the massive over, overcrowding. That's, that's item number one. There's simply too many people on this boat. You know, you could probably hardly turn around. You can see it in the pictures that men are absolutely crammed on there. And then secondly, it's that they are recently freed POWs. You know, most of the passengers, there are many who haven't had proper nutrition. They have various diseases. A lot of them are probably wounded and have had, you know, arms, legs amputated. And, you know, it's it's the 1860s. It's not the best medical care. So you can only imagine what kind of shape they're in. And unfortunately, those factors come together to create the uh, the most tragic example of a maritime disaster in American history. Yeah, this is a Did you? this is one that I didn't expect to be this bad going into. But this is a very depressing story. Yeah, it really is. Did you have any other thoughts with like the POWs, anything like that? Yeah, I made some notes here. Just about kind of the the human side, I guess. We've talked about, you just mentioned it again, about these are recently freed POWs. And to me, that's kind of the part that I I come into this knowing a little bit more about. I've read a little bit more about. But just looking at the people who are on this, these, these union POWs, a lot of these men had been recently paroled from Andersonville Prison um, in Georgia. And for any listeners unfamiliar with Andersonville, Andersonville Prison is, is essentially the dictionary definition of misery and squalor during the American Civil War. I mean, this was, this was by far the deadliest, worst conditions of any prison camp in the war on either side. The Union had its share of prison camps also. Elmira Prison in, in New York was notorious as a terrible place to be sent. But nothing on either side comes anywhere close to Andersonville. About 13,000 Union soldiers died in Andersonville. It was crowded well beyond capacity. Most of those men died from disease and starvation because there was simply too many men in this camp that was never built to house this many people, which that, that's a tragic story in itself at the end of the war as the prisoner exchange system breaks down for reasons on both sides. And the camp just gets bigger and bigger. But a lot of these men had come from Andersonville. So you you make it out of a horrendous situation. At this point, you know, if you're one of these men, you've most likely been in combat. 
You maybe have been wounded, you've been a prisoner of war, and you've survived some pretty hellish conditions. And then once your liberation is, is secured, you know, the war is ending, you're on your way home, and this happens. And there's something especially gut-wrenching about that. To get through all of these things, all of these dangers and tribulations, to die in, in this explosion because the quartermaster or the captain was going to make a little bit more money, or a lot more money, but still... There's just something very devastating about that. For sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, as, and just as a reference, I mean, I, this isn't really the topic of, of, of the show, but just to put that in perspective, because these are the men we're talking about, Andersonville, just to put those numbers in perspective, that 13,000 number, that is far more Union soldiers dying at Andersonville than, you know, the, the top five or six deadliest battles combined um, in terms of on, on the Union side. It's a it's a mind blowing number of men in the context of the time and of the American Civil War. So again, to survive that you know hellhole of Andersonville and to meet your end here uh, on the Mississippi as you're going home to your family, very sad, extremely depressing. It, it is, and I guess kind of transitioning into some just broader thoughts about the disaster as a whole. You know, the Sultana is, it's a historic tragedy that's not commonly known in American history. That's due to a variety of factors, and it's kind of relegated to being a footnote in Civil War history rather than something that's remembered as America's worst maritime disaster. And, you know, shipping has changed a lot since then. There's not a lot of technical lessons that you can learn from this, but there's certainly some moral lessons that you can learn from this. You know, it's a story of human uh, survival. It's greed, it's corruption, it's loss. And as we kind of harp on at the end of all of our episodes, uh, all of these stories are human stories. That it's, it's real people experiencing awful conditions. This disaster is definitely a product of its time, but we have to remember that it didn't happen in black and white. To the people that experienced it, it definitely happened in a very terrifying and vivid color. I can't imagine going through something like that. And like you said, you have the joy of going home. You have the joy of seeing family you haven't seen in years and it ends in the Mississippi River because of greed. Yeah, it's a tragic story, and it's one that needs to be remembered in American history more than it is. Yeah, for sure. That's um, a lot of these end of the war stories kind of get overlooked because you know the war's over, and like you said at the beginning, people don't want to focus on the on the bad parts. Now that the good parts are starting to happen, but they're there for sure. And I think this is the first story we've told of a you know a passenger ship, and we'll, we will do more. And in a lot of ways, the, the passenger stories are always a little more tragic. You generally are dealing with a higher death toll. But it's also people that they're not doing a job. They're just trying to get somewhere. They're trying to see family. You know, not to t you don't diminish the Alfaro or the Milwaukee, but that was their job. They were doing the thing that they do. You know, ships sail in bad weather and they picked the wrong day to do it. Or, you know, they didn't use all of the information to make their best decisions. But the men on board this Sultana, they weren't doing a job. They were just trying to get somewhere. And I think that does make it a little more tragic. Especially having, I mean, you could look at it the perspective of they, they already did their job, a, a job that most people probably wouldn't want to do. Um, and they got through that. And yeah, that's, that's the tragedy of it, of, of the passenger vessel here. Definitely. Yeah, I think we've summed it up pretty well in, in this example. Uh, this is a story where we don't have a lot of technical documents. We don't have, you know, we don't have a lot of uh, stuff to go off of other than the basic story and kind of the lessons that we can learn from it. Do you have anything else you wanted to add on this one or you, uh, you think we've pretty much done it? I think that really covers it. We've talked about it. We've gotten uh, 
gotten into the the bones of it, and it's it's all very sad. Oh. Yeah, it really is. This one is this is a sad one, and it should be. Again, this is the the worst maritime disaster in American history. So it is something that should be remembered as a as a sad event. That's true. But uh, anyway, I definitely appreciate uh, everybody listening. If you made it this far, we look forward to bringing you more of these. We will be doing it on a weekly basis. And uh, also, again, uh, don't hesitate to check out the Instagram Beyond the Breakers podcast on Instagram and send us an email beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com if you're uh, so inclined. We definitely uh, appreciate you guys checking out the pod and hope to bring you more soon. Thank you. Thank you.